0: Welcome everyone to this amazing Superfood Summit. I'm so ecstatic to be here with you for a second year. This year we're talking about composting. And compost that's right for you, for your goals, your plants, for your soil, for your climate, for your context. So we're gonna get into it. And if you've had compost in the past that hasn't worked exactly right, Maybe compost hasn't worked for your schedule or your lifestyle. We're gonna fix all of that. We're gonna address all of that. So stay tuned. Thank you for being here. I'm Matt Powers. Let's do this. <laughs> so composting for your context. Because any of us can get caught up in this idea of best compost. Because it seems like this reductionist perspective has, has circulated the globe. And that there is this endless search for the best method. And it's, it's really limiting because the reality is what's best is what's best for your context. And if we look here at the, at the, at the pH, which also relates to the fungal to bacterial ratios, which also has to do with nitrates and ammonium it also has to do with the secession. We realize that different soil types grow different plants. We realize that different pH for our soil amendments matters. And so the best compost really depends not only on our context as our our bioregion or the, the climate that we're in, but it's also in terms of our plants whether we're trying to grow perennials, tree crops, a garden, or specifically non-mycorrhizal plants like Swiss chard and beets and amaranth and brassicas. They don't work with fungi and they actively work against fungi and so it won't slip down into the more acidic into the more carbon sequestering, into the more soil organic matter-rich areas. So it's really important to recognize that non-mycorrhizal plants, actinobacterial-promoting plants, are right there al- alongside the weeds. And and these are actually, in many ways, weeds that we've selectively grown and selected to be bigger, more nutritious, uh, more delicious over time. That's what humans have done. And so our composts need to match our goals and our plants and our our situation in order for us to get a good result. And we can just see that just looking at this right now, fungal, the bacterial, we, we recognize that, oh, wow, fungi, they're everywhere in the old growth forest. They are the internet of the soils connecting all the trees in the old growth forest. And the old growth forests are acidic. Right, right. And so this is a useful chart. Dr. Elaine Ingham and I created this chart, the original version of this chart, and the Permaculture Student 2, an ebook that's free on my site, thepermaculturestudent.com. It's over a 400 page book. It's peer reviewed, it's cited, and it's incredible. So that's there for you if you would like. But to dive further into this, I said pH related on there. And so many of us have this image in our heads. And this image is actually a little bit misleading. I'm just going to come out right now and say that while this looks to be true, it's not really true because things are not available just in terms of pH. Because pH represents something very specific. It represents the power of hydrogen. And that is you know, measuring the hydroxides versus the protons, the H+. So that's very specific. And that's not the only factor controlling wh- what nutrients are available and in what forms. That's actually part of a bigger picture. pH is actually one leg of an XY chart. And this is brand new to many people, even, even famous... Scientists in soil aren't using this. This is radically changing everything because when you put oxidation, the redox rate, against the pH rate, the acidity versus alkalinity, you see a completely different picture. So that secession that we just saw, that left to right alkaline to acidic, that's kind of flipped the opposite direction and up. So it's alkaline oxidized, top right, and then bottom left, it's acid and reduced. And so reduced just means it's, it's, it's wetter, it's higher in energy, reduction actually in chemistry. We got to forgive them, but in chemistry, reduction is the gain in energy. It's the gain in electrons and oxidation is the gain in oxygen and the loss of energy. Now, there are some definitions out there that are just purely focused on the protons and the electrons. That's PE plus pH, and that can help with studying things like iron. But this chart here gives us such a powerful understanding that we suddenly see the exceptions to that pH chart. We see there are, the, like where the chemistry, the actual minerals are acidic, and you can oxidize those soils. They can be lower in organic matter. They could be tilled. They could be disturbed. They could be over tilled, highly aerobic and and still be, be oxidized and acidic because they're just minerals that are acidic. And then you go down below to alkaline and reduce compacted and waterlogged. So this is where the salt marshes are. This is where, where soils that have been tilled and then sprayed and contaminated mm-hmm. This is where they are because they're compacted. They might be waterlogged regularly and, and they may dry out. And so they may swing between oxidized and reduced. And they're staying in the alkaline territory because they're down to just their base minerals. And we see that the pathogens, the viruses, the umocytes, the bacteria, and the toxicities and deficiencies all hover around This favorable zone, the favorable conditions, the ideal zone is what it's known as. And what this also reveals is that if we just look at one mineral at a time, we can see how it is corroded and how it changes through those pH and Eh. And some of them are no doubt pH related. Look at zinc. Zinc is completely pH related. But when we look at nitrogen, it is complicated. Nitrogen is, I mean, it's not pH related. In fact, it's much more complicated than that. And EH, if you're not considering it, is going to bite you, right? That's why this is one of those things that's hard for people to get right. You can see why. And so I want us to think about all these things a little bit more a little bit more sophisticatedly than, than you normally see, right? I'm bringing in graduate school science. I'm bringing chemistry because I want to illustrate some points here. And it's going to make sense. I'm going to break it down. Here's some basics, right? So the ideal zone is in the middle of all these. And it's kind of the pivot point because each of these extremes releases things. So I know we say alkaline and oxidized is bad, but guess what? There's anions. That are useful. There are things that are only available in more alkaline or more oxidized conditions. And so because that's true, we really need those areas too. But isn't that also the surface of the soil? The surface of the soil is always going to be more oxidized. And actually, because it's more oxidized, it's going to be more alkaline. So the actual, if we think of mulch, of course, the mulch is oxidized on top. It's all dried out. And then, of course, we would know that it would be, I mean, if biologically the chemistry of it is more acidic, it would be oxidized and acidic, that mulch. Most of the time we're looking at alkaline mulch. And, and that, that mulch, as you go down, as it's being broken down by life, as it starts to turn into the soil profile, begins to travel down. It begins to be more reduced, have more energy in it and it begins to be more acidic because it's holding more energy like the protons the h plus from ph that's 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 also part of that measurement that's why we combine these two measurements and it gives us such a clear picture so we see like oh if we go too far into the acid reduced we get peat moss peat bogs and it's it's just organic matter it's highly reduced all these things suddenly make sense. And if our plants are in that Goldilocks center, they actually can choose for themselves, pushing this way, pushing that way, so that they can choose for themselves what is released. Because each of these conditions locks up and releases. And you don't want to go too far in any of the directions. So you just want to step a little bit here, step a little bit there. And they do that with their exudates. Going back to the hydrogen cycle, we see that those hydrogen protons and the hydroxide the oh negative they're opposites and it's and 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 it's totally part of photosynthesis and it depends on the context of the soil if your soil is more alkaline or if the plant is getting nitrates hydroxides are going to be released if the plant wants anions they have to release hydroxides so because some of the essential plant nutrients are anions there's always going to be the need for both alkaline and acidic areas in the soil. So it needs to be living soil. It also needs to have that, that no-till effect where it goes up in a gradient. I mean, sometimes we see roots that are just at the surface. You're like, whoa, these roots are here, I can't dig down, there's roots are already right here. They're getting different nutrients than they are at a deeper level because of this swing. And they're also releasing different exudates. When we realize that plants are directing the kind of energies and also sugars. Photosynthesis, if you look there, they're producing oxygen, but they're also producing sugars. And in the process of hydrolysis, they are breaking up the water and releasing the H plus or the OH negative. And so... This is all happening in real time. It's all happening at the same time. The energy stuff is happening at the same time as the exodus. you know, as Elaine says, the cookies and cakes and sugars are all going out at the same time. I would add that there's organic acids, there's, there's a lot of things going out and a lot of things coming in, including fully living microbes are going into a plant and being consumed. You know, the plants eat microbes. Um, plants are not vegetarians. So this this is an incredible perspective that plants have this choice, that plants are constantly choosing, that they're constantly promoting the differences in the soil so that they can get a full palette of nutrition and, and be in control of the rate and the timing of that nutrition. And this all leads to a new paradigm in the way that we see the soil Because before, this bioelectric perspective was not widely understood or known, though the research at the highest levels had been done. So you go back, you'll find like crumbs, you know what I mean? Like breadcrumbs that led us here all throughout the literature. But they they couldn't put it all together for some reason. And I think it's because of the siloing of education. And, and how nowadays we think holistically. So when we look at this stuff, it changes a lot of that. The hardware of the soil is the clay, the sand, and the silt, because all of them are cousin to the microchip. Clay, sand, and silt all contain silica and they're all silicates. And so they are literally, I mean, sand is silicon and oxygen, right? Right. Um, So they are literally containing this substance we use to store information and transfer information and to transfer energy. So the actual hardware of the soil can conduct energy. It can conduct, conduct nutrition. It can pass around information and it also can conduct organisms around. This is how... It's almost like a maglev train, like magnets upon magnets with no resistance. This is how a, a a single nutrient molecule can travel from a root tip to the top of a you know a very very tall hundreds of feet tall redwood tree in the California redwoods in just seconds. And it's it's that health of the tree that allows it to do that bioelectrically but it's also the nature of water, and it's also the nature of life. Life relies upon this relationship much more than it relies upon pH. So the bioelectric, the EH, not the pH, the EH side, which is the redox, the reduction oxidation, which is measured in millivolts, is the new new. And that's what everyone is all about. People are talking about it nonstop at the highest levels of soil science. And it's going to change all of agronomy. It's going to change all of food. And we're at a superfood summit. And what do they always talk about superfoods having? Antioxidants. And if oxidizing is the loss of energy, antioxidants are the gain of energy. So let's just think about that as we go through this all, right? Now, the next component, the software that goes into that computer and allows us to actually run it If you're from the 80s, you remember that the machine was just a brick, you know, it's just a piece of machinery that never worked unless you put the disk in. The software, the Windows software that came installed was a novel thing when it began because you didn't need that startup disk to, to actually run any programs. And so the organic matter is actually the software. It's the operating system. And it In in addition to that, it's the battery. It's really, really amazing. And so, and and, and in a way, because it's really good software, it almost enhances the hardware itself. With with software, just being smarter, using less energy, um, and using energy more wisely. Organic matter behaves the same sort of way. There's an efficiency that comes from it. There's a facility that comes from it. And it's also the reservoir for all the electrons that are drawn down during photosynthesis. So photosynthesis is taking the energy from the sun, combining it with the air and water, and making sugars, oxygen, and oxygen's really being vented here, right? Let's be honest, it's venting the oxygen and it's creating the sugars and taking down that energy and releasing it into the soil. And the organic matter stores the nutrients, it's, it's habitat it's food and we'll, and the microbes themselves are food we'll get more into that it's, it, it's absolutely incredible so it's the operating system it's the platform it's the foundation upon all these things get to play out without it it's just a mineral soil and it's caustic to life like if you have just purely mineral soil you add life onto it it's like ah! and dies um, it, because it gets zapped you know and we, we really need to have that soil organic matter there as the holding capacity for water and, and literally as the buffer on the pH and EH, which is fascinating to think about. But that organic matter, that compost, the organic matter drawn down by our plants and fungi, that actually keeps us in that Goldilocks ideal zone. So you bring that up and you, you fix everything, actually. It's really stunning. And this is really the reason why, because when you're doing compost, when you're operating with plants at the highest levels, you're really operating with the ultimate ideal users of this machine and operating system, which are the soil food web members. And uh, these are the microbes, the different trophic levels, all the way down to rhizophagy. I know some people don't include rhizophagy with the soil food web trophic levels of feeding, but they're all part of, of that soil food web. And and they all and, and the, the, their roles quite often are overlapping and they change as the context changes, much like cells, you know, are influenced by the environment that they're in. We've tried to run this operating system ourselves, you know, thinking that we were the chemistry wizards with the Green Revolution. And it was absolutely disastrous. And that's why all over the world now, there's this deep desire, deep understanding and and, and you know, even panic over the soils and, and, and getting our soils regenerated. And so we got to have the plants, we got to have the microbes all do this themselves. And we just have to be the facilitators, give them the context, give them the tools to make it happen. So fungal to bacterial, absolutely important, but as well as mineral. So I know you'll see, you know, fungal to bacterial in a lot of my older work, and in my published work, and in a lot of people now are talking about it. But the mineral side is something that wasn't taken in from the biological world, and I've been able to connect them as as I've gone down to the biochemical, bioelectric level, down to the microbes, because they are using molecules that have specific elements and nutrients in them that have names. And it's not like it's just a wild card thing. It's very specific. So I've gone down to that level and writing my most recent book, The Best-Selling Regenerative Soil. You can get that on Amazon. You can get that on my site. It's absolutely incredible. And I could say that because it was the most incredible journey for me, discovering all this, learning from all the experts, reading all the original source materials, the journals, the studies, and then talking to the actual scientists doing the test and the actual farmers trialing it out and finding such huge success that that I I just can't I just can't stop talking about it it's so important that we connect all these things and have a holistic perspective now let's talk about these compost types because obviously you know there's fungal the bacterial and and I can get into that we'll get into that But there's this other piece that's a little bit more complicated, oxidation versus fermentation. And when we oxidize things, we're combining with air, with oxygen, it's aerobically composted, right? And that is going to lock up nutrients. That is going to burn things, right? Because oxidation is a burning process and it's going to have it gas off. That's where that heat is. It's actually that reaction of like burning, like a candle burning, it's oxidative. And so that is something that we want to do as, as little as possible. So that's why the composting needs to be efficient, needs to be really well done, not, not too hot. It's really important that our composts are not too hot, that they're, they're, they're mixed properly, their ingredients are, our ratios are right, and, and then it's allowed to ferment. It's so important because fermentation is the drawdown of the energy, Think about the fermentations that you have. They're all highly acidic, right? They're very reduced. You're sealing out the oxygen. Because there's no oxygen, and they're they're oxygen-free environments, it allows for the reduction at just greater and greater depths. So this is why fermented foods are so powerful. But this is also why fermentation forms of decomposition are also powerful and open to us in doing both. Like I said, Elaine Ingham always recommends, you know, after oxidizing through thermophilic composting to then let it sit, to let it ferment, to let the fungal numbers get up to the right ratios. So just want to put that out there. This is all explained in regenerative soil in incredible depth. But I want to cover it here. I want to introduce it because I think you're smart enough to understand this stuff. I think you're getting I think you're following along. Let's keep going. Most of us know moldering or static compost. This can go wrong because we're constantly adding to it, but this can turn out really great because it's static. It might not get aerated, so it might go anaerobic, but if it's just aerated enough, if its ingredients are balanced enough, and you give it enough time, regardless of all the variables, you're going to end up with absolutely incredible compost that's been inoculated by indigenous microorganisms and really broken down by the the biology of the of the local region. And that this is grandma's compost, and this has incredible value because it's not turned, because you wait until it's right, and when it's right, it's it's really incredible. It usually has an incredible structure because it's been, uh, it's been given over to the microbes to create that structure. All right, so thermophilic compost. Thermophilic compost is a process of hot composting. This is what allows us to make compost fast. We're harvesting greens, getting those before they go to seed. We have browns that have gone to seed. They're just standing carbon, essentially. And then we've got manures or nitrogen source, like comfrey or stinging nettle in large amounts. And we're combining these in equal amounts, 30%, 30%, 30% in layers. So we're gonna start with browns first so that it aerates. And then we're gonna layer this up, layer after layer after layer after layer until you fill up and and wrapping it with a fence like this is best practice so that's aerated on all sides and then you can you can water as you go but but you can also water at the end and and when it leaks that lets you know that the pile is saturated and then you want to cover it up and let it heat up and that can take two to four days depending on the ambient temps depending on the ingredients and you want it to get up initially and then every turn after that, you're going to have the temperature drop a little bit, but then it's going to come back up to heat. And every time it comes back to heat, it'll be a little bit cooler. So this process is one of turning whenever it gets too hot. The traditional way to do this was a very strict Berkeley compost schedule in which folks were combining and watering on day one. Day four, they turn it and keep it moist. And then every other day after that, they turn it until it's complete. And and it's it's 18 days. And it's a very generalized beginner's way to begin because it's so strict. It really doesn't allow for us to step in there and make aggressive decisions. So Elaine shortened it to 15 days at 131 to 141, turning five times minimum now the first day the first temperature i'm hearing from a lot of people that they let it go up to 160 155 160 and that's okay as long as it doesn't get above that um you won't lose the 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 really good microbes but ideally we want to try to keep it at this lower temperature to hold on to as many microbes as possible but still kill the pathogens burn the weed seeds up kill the viruses, all that. And remember, alcohol spontaneously combusts at 180 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you have anaerobic pockets that are producing alcohols and you still have hot pockets that are oxidizing, you combine those two things and you can get a fire. So turn it before it even approaches there or don't. Because the reality is you don't have to turn a compost. There are other ways and adaptations of those ways. Have you heard of Johnson Sioux composting? Now, this composting method is a static aerated composting method. So in a large container, there's a lot of compost being combined and there are these perforated pipes that are put down into it. And those pipes allow for air to get within 12 inches of the next air pocket so that everywhere is getting enough air to stay passively aerated. And this takes for over a year. It is absolutely giant. You can make little ones, but it it can make incredible compost like we've never before seen recorded. That being said, Dr. Elaine Ingham's compost has not been run through the genetic testing that has been done by Dr. David Johnson's. Which is, which is coming and will be fascinating to compare the two finally. This is, this compost has had the data done on it and the results have been absolutely incredible. You can shrink it down, you can do it in a backyard, you can make it wider and go big and just have it not be so tall. And you can make your own semi-aerated static compost. When I went and saw Michael Whitman for filming the Advanced Permaculture Student Online years ago, I was really surprised that he had an air hose beneath his compost and was passively aerating his compost and not turning it but as i've come to learn the power of fungi i really understand now how important it was to not turn it to allow for the balance to be struck and then em composting this is another one em is so amazing em is effective microbes and they are lactic acid bacteria, they are purple non-sulfur bacteria, they are yeasts, they're actinobacteria, There are a whole host of microbes that are saprophytes and endophytes. And so they break things down and make them available into plant available nutrients. And then at the same time, They go inside the plant and strengthen the plant and cause immunological responses that make the plant stronger. So EM uh, composting is really powerful. You uh, You can use EM as a foliar. You can use it to break down your compost. You can use it to strengthen your plants and your soil and your soil microbes. It's absolutely incredible. These microbes stimulate the indigenous microorganisms. And in composting, they turn the nitrogen into amino acids so that it doesn't spike in its heat. It doesn't break down the weed seeds, no doubt, no doubt, but it has biocontrol agents. And so those pathogens, those parasites, all those things are taken care of and, 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 and neutralized or digested. It is the really the weed seeds that, that um, don't break down uh, in, the, in those piles in the same way because those piles cap at 131 degrees. It's less turning because of that. And so you have lower pH and EH, which means more nutrients are bioavailable. And it holds more water because there's less turning. And it breaks down faster, but retains more of its initial size because it's not gassing anything off. It's fermentative, not oxidative. So it's not shrinking by gassing off CO2, like running an engine, which is one of the number one complaints about compost. So it has more energy in it and it saves time and energy for you. The hot compost, you know, it's very easy for things to gas off. You might have smelled it smelling like ammonia once. It's 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 more oxidized. You've got to let it sit longer to get it back to a fermentive, reduced state. And it's higher in pH because you're turning it so much because it's oxidized, all the forms of nitrogen in it are nitrates, And this works great for when we usually add compost which is at the beginning of the season when plants really need the nitrate and it's uh, that vegetative growth that it's feeding. But if we feed this oxidized compost during the fruiting time period, we'll screw up our fruiting because the nitrates are are, are not for fruiting. Ammonium is for fruiting. You need a little bit of nitrate. It's the ammonium that predominantly that you need and not very much of that actually in comparison to the nitrates. So it's it's really important to to recognize that. And so it loses more energy and nutrients, but it's a perfectly stable medium for biology. It has very selected, powerful biology. And it's been proven that if you've got the biology right, this can transform an entire system as an inoculant, not as a soil amendment. But the same thing can be said for EM. EM transforms sites, transforms soils. So both are very powerful. Now. Bokashi is EM, composted food. And it's a fermentation process that actually can take bones and dairy and meat and really anything because these microbes are so incredible. It's acidic, it's reduced. And so if you aren't, aren't thinking about that when you're adding it, you could screw up where you're at. But if you're looking to reduce, if you're looking to be more acidic, this could be incredible. Now, Preta composting this, you know, harkens back to the Amazon where the latrine pits, where the fire pits all were one thing. And so at first they would be doing these these pit fires and over them they would be brewing chicha, the corn beer, and these, you know, earthen clay pots that often broke and leaked. So the yeast from that is getting down onto they're burning logs, which are biochar. And then when they're done, they're putting their their scraps in there, they're turning into a latrine. All the information, all the microbes, all of those things are in a feedback loop. And it's truly incredible. We all can be doing something like this. EM really is very similar, if not um, cousin to the reason Preta is Preta. So They have their own consortium of effective microbes that are actually creating and constantly expanding the terra preta soils. They can cut it down to 20 centimeters and then keep feeding it organic matter and have that soil increase to 20 feet deep again. So terra preta composting is incredible and and it's something that we can imitate today by adding compost, by adding biochar to our compost, by inoculating our compost with things like EM and other biofertilizers, and and doing pit composting, people are also doing woody compost like the Jean Penn compost that is in giant wood piles. But I, I, again, that's gassing off; it's using the methane for burning, and it's not making the best soil. So I don't think you want that one. Sheet mulching and sheet composting might be one of the greatest ways to form soil, the greatest ways to compost, because there's no turning, it's all in place, and you literally can just set it and forget it. You can show up, you can add biochar, you can add kelp, you can be adding compost, and then you can be dressing it on top with freshly chopped mulch. So what I like to do is I come in after a cover crop is finished and I chop it down and then I put biochar down and then I put kelp and EM and compost in a layer and then I cover that with more biomass, with more mulch that will break down and that creates a compost in place and it's absolutely stunning and amazing what happens, how fast it transforms the soils. We don't need to be concentrating things as much if our soils are being treated as living mediums in which we can have this happen because then the animals feeding off of those plants are getting the composting microbes in there in the plants the endophytes that were in the compost they're now in the plants they're getting inside the digestion of the animal they're helping promote all that and the manure that comes out also supports those microbes and that future of greater resilience Hugo cultures this is a great one if you've got excess wood if you bury it you will be able to retain water and have a great growing a few great growing seasons uh, depending on where you are, uh, it'll take longer or shorter, but that wood will break down into soil and you'll have a ton of soil. This is a soil making technique. Most people think it's a gardening technique. It's actually a soil building uh, technique. Now, compost tea. Compost tea is incredible. When we take that compost and then we're putting it in water and then we can apply it. This, this might be what works for you. You make one compost. It's like the best compost, but uh, you you can't be like spreading it all thin. That was too much value, too much work. Okay, let's scale it up. Let's combine it with water. Let's aerate it for 24 to 48 hours. And then it's good for six to eight hours after it's done aerating. And then you can use it as sol- soil soak, as a foliar spray, as a r- seed soak, as a root inoculant soak. And it is miraculous what happens. And I've been using compost tea for years and I've seen it transform my soil. I've seen it strengthen my plants. I've seen it save plants. It can't be underestimated how powerful compost tea is. And like I said, two to five days, it's ready. Depending on water temperatures, it can be as as, as short as a day if it's really hot out. And it's only viable for six to eight hours. And then you can water it down two to one, four to one water to tea but I've also used it concentrated on the soil because you've already diluted it in the tea. Even though you're promoting it, it's still diluted in water. So I've used it undiluted as well, but again, it's all the bang for the buck kind of thinking, and most folks are gonna wanna stretch it. You can apply it as a foliar or water into the soil. Here are some recipes that will help you. This is from Regenerative Soil, my new book. And it's filled with recipes like this that will literally guide you step-by-step step to make the best compost teas, the best compost. You name it, we've got it. It's many people, whether the like David Holmgren, the co-creator of permaculture itself, or, or farmers that, that are trying to make a living, they are all saying that this book is indispensable. And so from the garden to the commercial farm setting, Everyone needs to understand the way soils actually work and how to work with them regeneratively. And that's what this book's about. We have to understand the ratios and we can, we can count the ratios. We have to understand what we're doing because it will influence the plant. It will influence everything that grows in that soil and all the products we get from that soil. So woody compost equals fungal foods. So your wood chips, your leaves, your sticks, those are fungal foods. So is fish emulsion. So is chitin and insect frass. And then green and fresh compost, that that's bacterial food. So all the fresh greens, the, the grasses, eat, and, and especially the kitchen compost where it's heavy in sugar, those are all bacterial foods. And then bacterial... It's low in lignin, it's high in sugar, it's, and it's good moisture, but it's always gonna lead to bacterial. And that's why vermicompost always leans towards bacterial. And then fungal compost, again, those are the woody composts, and those are the still fermented composts. So compost extract, this is humic acid, which is a fungal food. And you just passively water your compost and the water that comes out is compost extract, which is also humic acid. And there's also fungal-to-bacterial balance. That's us seeking toward that ideal zone. Let's say you're already there. You're in the ideal pH and EH zone. You want to stay there. So you want fungal-to-bacterial balanced compost. And that brings us to the ingredients. Because when we look at things, we realize that there's actually an ideal carbon-to-nitrogen ratio. And Elaine, you know, very cleverly separated it into greens, browns and, and manures and so I've done that in this chart as well subtly so you see there's greens and there's browns and then there's really dark browns for the manure and they actually cover more than those those sections usually cover so it, it really is illuminating and allows us to understand that we could build a compost heap with just straw and manure and still make really good healthy soils but, but it's the ratios and so the Berkeley compost method the Elaine 30, 30, 30 compost method they are effective and they work but compost ingredients carbon to nitrogen ratios these things are what they're doing and that's why they're effective and using just these, these ingredients seeking for uh, fungal the bacterial balanced or dominant of either we can quickly see what would lead to that we, we, we can lead towards more annuals or we can lean t- towards more perennials or wood or high lignin, and we will lean towards bacterial or fungal just by doing that. So the typical compost is in the 20-30 to carbon and nitrogen ratio range at its start and 10 to one carbon and nitrogen ratio by its completion. Moisture levels need to be maintained in the 50 to 65% range. So woody, lignin, complex carbohydrates, that's the fungal foods. Green vegetation, simple sugars, that's bacterial. Now, if you want to take your compost to the next level, you want to take your soil to the next level, you're going to have to have biochar. I know there's been a lot of debates about biochar out there, but it's really indisputable that it's a value that we cannot do without. It can hold three times its mass in water. It is a remediation superstar. It can remove heavy metals. It can remove toxins. It can balance things out. It can hold so many nutrients. It can hold life. And it's the perfect inoculant and rock dust carrier and storage. So thinking back to the machine, the operating system, the battery and the users metaphor, we realize that the biochar and rock dust are the only hardware upgrades that we can get. It's just not practical to truck in clay or sand or something like that to give us that loam, that 30, 30, 30% loam. Because the, re- the reality is is that eat with any soil, adding enough organic matter will get with life will give you that loam. So going back to rock dust, basalt is best. It's highly paramagnetic. If you wanna learn more about that term, please read my book. And 75% of all volcanic soils are basalt basalt is best. It has the most nutrients available. So really, when we circle back to the beginning, what's the best compost for you? The question really depends on what your goals are, what your soil pH, EH ranges are, your soil organic matter levels are, and what your your bioregion really lends itself to. Because once you understand those things, you're going to unlock your soils, you're going to unlock your plant's highest levels of nutrition because the highest levels of plant health rely upon robust biology. And robust biology relies upon a robust environment in the soil. And that's what compost brings. That's what compost reinvigorates. And that's what we can do now with our compost, knowing that If we are working with trees, we want it to be more fungal. If we're working with gardens, we want it to be more fungal, bacterial balanced. If we're working in an area that's acidic, you might want to drive it back up towards 6.57 where it's more neutral. It all depends on your context and that's why I want to give you the keys to make the best decisions, the best choices and take the best actions. Thank you so much for watching. If you like this sort of thing, you can pick up your copy of Regenerative Soil, the hardcover book, the new best-selling book. So much going on. And it's all really exciting because soil is the linchpin to life. And if we get soil right, we get the plants right, we get our health right, we get our future right. It's gonna be amazing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this amazing summit. I'll see you soon. I'm Matt Powers grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. Thank you.